So this morning, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in uh, Matthew 15. Uh, this is our third week uh, looking at the miracles in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, and so if you want to turn there, you can. We'll be at verse 21. Uh, I just want to kind of remind you for context where we've been. So far, we've looked at Jesus feeding the 5,000 uh, men plus women and children with five loaves of bread and two fish. And then uh, last week we looked at how later on that night he, he walked on the water to the disciples and enabled Peter to do so as well. Uh, we saw in that that Peter's faith uh, failed him uh, when he doubted and Jesus called him both little faith uh, and challenged him to examine the root of his doubt that overtook him in faith. So he, he says, why did you doubt, Peter? And that's what we looked at last week. And so then um, a few things happen between then and where we are today. And so just for context, I kind of want to walk you through that. Uh, so the disciples, Jesus and Peter get in the boat. The storm is calmed and they go on the rest of their journey. They land uh, and Jesus, they reach the land. And after being recognized, uh, many people alerted the surrounding areas so that great crowds of people brought their sick to be healed. And so Jesus, uh, of course, people flocked to him on that side as well as they did on the other side. And he begins to heal their sick. And so in the midst of this healing ministry, um, Pharisees from Jerusalem come, uh, kind of this official delegate from Jerusalem. They come and they're appalled uh, that Jesus' disciples are not washing their hands before they eat bread. Uh, and so they ask him, why do your disciples not wash their hands? Essentially, they're saying, why do you not teach the same thing that we teach? Why are you not keeping the same standards? Why are you not teaching your disciples to and Jesus um, exposes their corrupt and incorrect thinking. He turns to the crowd and explains to the crowd that true defilement comes from within the heart of man and not what he ingests. And so having sufficiently enraged the religious leaders and having challenged the accepted Jewish religious status quo, Jesus leaves that area and goes into Gentile territory. It's kind of interesting that kind of at the height of this, his ministry, the Pharisees from Jerusalem, kind of the center uh, of Judaism come and challenge him, and after defeating them, he leaves and goes into Gentile territory. Now, we're, we're not given a reason in the book of Matthew, but when you look at the, the corresponding account in the, the book of Mark, uh, Mark tells us that he, he, his desire was to withdraw into a place where no one knew where he was. Uh, and so we, noticed a few, we noted a few weeks ago, rather, that the feeding of the 5,000, that started with Jesus wanting to get away, Right? Uh, John the Baptist had just been beheaded. The reports had just been delivered to him. His disciples had been on a short-term mission trip. They come back and he says, let's go away into a quiet place because they couldn't even find a moment to eat. And so they, they go to be away in the wilderness and the crowds follow them. They get in the boat after he's fed them and ministered to them. They cross over and the crowd show up and he ministers to them. And then the Pharisees come and, and maybe he thinks like, if I don't get out of this a Jewish controlled area, they're never going to leave me alone. Maybe he's still looking for quiet. We don't, we don't really know uh, why he leaves. But whatever the reason, today we find a miracle happening outside of Jewish territories. And even more surprising is the recipient of the miracle, uh, who is not a Jew or even a convert, but an outsider who displays an unshakable faith. And so you might have heard the story of the Canaanite woman and her faith. If you're there in your Bibles, maybe it says the faith of the Canaanite woman or the great faith. And so uh, Matthew does something amazing here. He kind of, he paints this contrast for us, right? Just last week, we were looking at the disciples uh, who had little faith, right? Jesus calls them uh, little faith. 
And now, just a few verses later, we're going to look at great faith. Jesus is going to say, great is your faith. So we've gone from disciples exercising what Jesus calls little faith. And now we find Jesus commending a stranger for her great faith. What I find, one of the things I find interesting about this miracle we're going to be looking at today is that while it is no less miraculous than, than multiplying loaves or walking on water, uh, the miracle itself happens uh, off camera, if you will. Like we're not told any details about the healing of this woman's daughter. Uh, we know that a child is freed from demonic oppression at a word from our Savior. Uh, and while Mark's account focuses less on the interaction between the woman and Jesus and more on the miracle, Matthew seems to focus us in on this issue of the woman's faith. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, three elements of this miraculous encounter as we try to answer the question, what does great faith look like? So what does great faith look like? And we're going to look at that uh, by looking at this woman's faith, as well as Jesus' response to it. So if you take notes, uh, the first element of this miraculous encounter we find is a desperate plea. A desperate plea. And so that's where we're going to see the story kind of starts with, uh, Jesus in the area of these Gentiles, and there is a woman with a desperate plea. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at verses 21 and 22 together. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, son of O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Every word in that verse helps us understand what is happening in this encounter. So he says that he is in the district of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, this is kind of northwest of Galilee, uh, close to the Mediterranean Sea. It's, it's Gentile country. Uh, it is outside of the scope of the, of the promised land, if you will. And so Jesus is in this uh, Galilee or Gentile country. And he says a Canaanite woman from that region. Mark uses a different term. He says she was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race. Uh, Matthew uses a more generic term to uh, describe her descendancy of the Canaanites, a Canaanite woman. Uh, what we are to understand about this woman, regardless of whether we use Mark's terminology or Matthew's, is that she is a Gentile. And she is of the people group who are normally considered hostile to the Jews. They have been enemies to the Jews for a long time. And so this is setting up the story for us. Jesus is in, quote unquote, enemy territory. And of course, he meets a Gentile because that's where Gentiles live. So he encounters this Gentile woman. And the Bible says, because uh, the reason he encounters that she came out and was crying, uh, she came out of that territory, that her house, her town, uh, wherever it was, she came out and was seeking Jesus out and was crying. The word here used is not an emotional crying, but rather raising your voice and crying out. It could be translated as shouting. So Jesus is in Gentile territory, and a Gentile woman comes out, and she begins shouting after the, uh, him and his disciples. So what was her cry? What was she sh shouting? Let's look at three elements, what she is looking for, who she is addressing, and why is she addressing him. So the first element is, what, what is she looking for? She says what? Have mercy on me. Uh, the word mercy is compassion. She is looking for compassion. She is looking for Jesus to be compassionate towards her. We don't know how this woman heard about Jesus, but it seems what she had heard was that he was merciful or compassionate. So she's asking, would you show that mercy to me? 
right? Would you be compassionate towards my needs? So that's what she is looking for. Who is she addressing? What does she call Jesus? She says, O Lord, son of David. It's two titles that she uses. Uh, Lord, uh, of course, is a respectful title. It can, it can range anything from master to even talking about God. And so she says, O Lord, and son of David. Now, these could have been formalities, right, designed to bring her closer to Jesus by using the right Jewish words. Um, but as the story unfolds and her faith is displayed, I think it's more than that. I think she is acknowledging that from what she knows about this man and his ministry, this is the promised son of David. This is the Jewish Messiah. This is the anointed one. She recognizes from what she's heard about him that this has got to be the one that God promised to send, the son of David, the king of the kingdom. And so she's looking for compassion. She's going to what she believes to be this Jewish Messiah, the anointed one, the son of David. But why is she doing that? Why is she addressing him? Uh, her daughter uh, is in a bad situation. Now, we don't know whether this is a young daughter or this is a grown daughter. All we know is that her daughter is, the Bible says, severely oppressed. And, and we're not told, uh, in, there's no hints to the nature of the oppression, only that it's demonic in nature. Uh, she's either diseased because of it or it's simply very severe in its effects. But this is a situation her daughter is bad off. And as you can imagine, this woman has tried everything in her power and every remedy available to her to help her daughter and thus far has been unsuccessful. Like, you know, when your kids hurt, you hurt, right? And she's watched her daughter suffer and we don't know how long, but it has gone on for long enough that she is desperate. She now believes she has found one able to help her daughter. She believes that Jesus is able, and so she desperately and unrelentingly cries out. So having understood the situation before us, let us ask a simple question. What do we know about her faith so far? But really, before we ask that question, we have to ask a more basic question. What is faith? What is it that we're talking about? And so letting Scripture interpret Scripture, uh, the Bible gives us a definition of faith in Hebrews 11. Faith is defined as this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The confidence in things we expect and the proof of things not seen. To oversimplify it then, to exercise faith, is to put our confidence in what we hope for or to be convinced that what has not yet happened will happen. It's confidence, it's belief. And so what do we know about this woman's faith so far? Let's walk through her story. She has a desperate need. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. The beginning of faith is understanding we need something beyond ourselves. As long as we're okay, we don't need faith, right? As long as the answer is plain or the challenge within our abilities and resources, we do not need faith. If she could have healed her daughter, she did not, would not need faith, right? But she couldn't. And so she has a desperate need. And she possessed a small amount of truth. She says, O Lord, son of David. Faith is not only about need. Faith is rooted in knowledge. But listen, it must go beyond knowledge, right? James tells us that. 
It's not just knowing something to be true, but it moves beyond that category. But listen, you have to know it in order to have faith in it. Faith is not blind, as some would call it. This woman had some basic knowledge about God, his people, and his promises to them because she was able to recognize that Jesus was this son of David. So her faith started with her desperate need for her daughter. She had a small amount of knowledge of truth that Jesus was the son of David, but knowledge is not enough. No matter how big or small your your amount of knowledge is, knowledge is not the same as faith. Knowledge, whether big or small, is not enough, which leads us to the pertinent part of her story. She was willing to act on what she knew in faith. The Bible says that she cried out to Jesus. If I could say it this way, faith is acting on the knowledge you have in light of your need. Right? That's the faith that she exercised. She had a need and she, she believed that Jesus could meet that need and so she acted on that knowledge. Faith caused her to leave her house to seek out Jesus because she believed he could heal her daughter and so she cried out to him for compassion. This is the pattern of faith we find over and over in the New Testament. Desperate need, a little bit of truth, action. Now, when we talk about putting our faith in Jesus for salvation, you can see the same pattern emerge, can't you? Desperate need, knowledge, action. This is the way faith works itself out. You will never come to place your faith in Jesus until you realize your desperate need for the salvation that only comes through him. No one will come to Christ until they realize their desperate need. And having realized their desperate need, someone tells them about Christ. And having realized that salvation only comes through him, listen, you do not need to know all the inner workings of God or his plan. It is enough to know that Jesus offers salvation to those who will repent of their own trust in anything else and come to him in faith. And having realized your need and understanding that Jesus can meet that need, you act on it, the Bible says, by crying out to him. This is the pattern of faith. But listen, this is not the end of faith. It's the beginning of it. When we come to Christ, listen, all of the Christian life is faith. All of it. Listen, on Wednesday nights, we've been studying through the the book of Ephesians. What we, need, what we learned about Ephesians is, first of all, is a letter written to Christians in the church who had already placed their faith in Christ, right? We learned that from the very beginning. And as we read through Ephesians, what we found is the more that we study, the more desperate our need becomes, right? The deeper we go into God's desire for us, the deeper and more desperate we become because the more fully we realize that Jesus is the only one to meet those needs, And so we cry out to him to help us, help us walk in ways consistent to who we are, to help us experience the unity he wants for us in the church, in the home, in the marketplace, to help us fight the spiritual battles raging around us, right? The more that we walk with Christ, the more we realize that faith is a day-to-day operation, right? All All of Christian life is faith. And so this woman recognizing her desperate need, and recognizing Jesus is the answer, she cries out to him, right? We, we see the pattern of faith. And so the question is, how does Jesus respond? 
Well, normally he responds pretty quickly, right? And favorably, right? This is what we've seen over and over in the New Testament. The blind men call out, he heals them. The woman reaches out to touch his robe, she's healed. The paralyzed man is lowered through the ceiling and he pronounces him forgiven and heals him. Like, this is immediate ministry. I mean, just last week, we highlighted the immediacy that Christ grabbed a hold of Peter when he cried out to him. He said, Lord, save me. And the Bible says, immediately he grabbed him, right? This is the way we are used to seeing Jesus respond. But the second element of our encounter this morning is not an immediate response, but a delayed response. So you have this desperate plea. This woman comes out and she's crying out after Jesus. Help me, have mercy on me, be compassionate to me. And we'll find his response in verse 23. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came out and begged him saying, send her away. For she is crying out after us. He did not answer her a word. Jesus does not answer her desperate plea. The language implies he is indifferent to it. He ignores it. And this evidently goes on long enough for the disciples to become irritated or agitated with the situation. I want to make two just grammatical notes. The, the verb tense in verse 22 of crying is imperfect, indicating an ongoing action. Like she didn't just cry out. She is crying out over and over and over again. The same tense is used in the word for when the disciples come to beg Jesus to stop. So she is repeatedly crying out and the disciples are actively begging Jesus to put a stop to it. So you, have this, this, you can imagine the scene, right? She's crying out. The disciples are begging Jesus to do something. But we don't need to think that the disciples are, are, are begging Jesus to just simply send her away. Uh, they could be saying, just heal her daughter, right, and send her on. We've seen you heal Gentiles before. We've seen you do, mad. just like, just, gi just give her what she wants and send her on her way, right? Either way, they're frustrated, and so they come to Jesus. And then we're going to look at his answer to them more in depth in our next session. But for now, I want to focus in on the silent. But he answered, he did not answer her a word. Now, we already acknowledge that she had faith, right? She knew the right words, have compassion on me. She knew the right person, O Lord, son of David, and she had the right attitude. My daughter is severely oppressed. She was not asking selfishly, but as an intercessor for her daughter. And yet, Jesus did not immediately respond. The Bible says he didn't even say one single word. What gives? She came to the right person. She said the right words. She seems to have the right attitude, the right reason. Like, shouldn't this be a no-brainer? Isn't this kind of thing Jesus has been doing since he started his ministry? It seems like a home run, right? She's coming to him. She knows the right words. She has a, right, a good need, right? Jesus came for this reason. And yet, she is encountered by silence. Now, we're never explicitly told why Jesus remains silent, but there could be a number of reasons. Two of the most prevalent that I think is perhaps he was intentionally waiting to see how the disciples would respond to this silence. Or perhaps he was intentionally waiting to see how the woman would respond to a silence. I mean, it's a pretty interesting question, isn't it? Why didn't Jesus respond immediately? Whatever his reason for, it produced two things. The woman continued to cry out. His silence does not deter her. And the disciples get irritated and beg him to do something. 
So let's focus on that first result. His silence called continued crying out of the woman. Is this not a living example of Jesus' exhortation to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Remember the verb forms are keep seeking, keep asking, keep knocking, like continue action. Isn't this what she's doing? This Gentile woman who did not hear the Sermon on the Mount is walking in obedience to it. Isn't it consistent with the parable of the persistent widow, right? Jesus tells his disciples uh, this parable to encourage them to pray always and not lose heart. This continued asking and knocking and seeking. Let's imagine for a minute that after crying out to Jesus and his silence, that she gave up and went home. Supposing that everything she had heard about Jews was correct and they had no dealings with her kind. Imagine if she assumed because of his silence, no, respect, she was, no self-respecting Jew would engage with a woman in conversation and so she gave up and went home. What if she supposed that the reports of Jesus' compassion had been greatly exaggerated and gave up and went home? What if she did not continue to cry out? Would that have been faith she exercised by coming to Jesus or some last-ditch effort to secure a cure for her daughter in her own ability? Think about it for a minute. If silence can defeat it, it's not faith. Faith is not something you try. Faith is something you hold and believe and are convinced by. So this wasn't just a last ditch effort for her to secure some cure by coming to a Jewish Messiah. She believed that he was the only one that could heal her daughter and his silence would not deter her from believing that. This is faith, right? God is not a, a, listen, God is not a tool to get what you want. He will not be mocked or manipulated. She had all the right boxes checked, but she could not make Jesus speak. Too often we think that if we say the right words, if we check the right boxes, God is obligated to answer our petitions and our prayers. Make no mistake, God is not obligated to give you anything. Let's bring it down to a more familiar level because some of y'all are looking at me like I'm crazy. Just because my children come to me and ask me me respectfully and politely for something does not mean they will get it, right? Imagine if my 10-year-old came to me and said, Oh, precious and sweet father of mine. Oh, great provider of good gifts. You're a wonderful father, and I know you love me so very much, and I'm so hungry, and I know that you don't want me to be hungry, so can you please give me the keys to the car so I can go to the store? Of course not. She's probably not going to get an answer either because even though she came to the right person and even though she's asking for a good thing and even though it's within my power, it's not good for her. I think too often we treat faith as a way that we try and manipulate God. Now, we would never say that, but our actions do. We say, sure, I have faith in God. I believe in Jesus. I accept him into my life. And all the while, we expect him to give us what we want, when we want it, to make our lives better, to bless our plans for our lives on our timetable and according to our schedule. And when that doesn't happen, we abandon our so-called faith and claim that it didn't work. We don't believe it anymore. Or as a popular saying goes today, we deconstruct our faith. Because what we had wasn't faith. 
What we had was we were trying to manipulate the God of the universe to bless us. It's not faith. So she comes to Jesus and she cries out and Jesus doesn't answer. And that is the first test of her faith. Is this something she's just trying or does she really believe that this is the man who can say a word and heal her daughter? And so his silence does not deter her. She continues to cry out. Sometimes God doesn't answer because we're not asking for good things. Sometimes he doesn't answer, I think, in order to test the genuineness of our faith or to grow our faith is what I think. I think that's what he's doing here. But the greatness of our faith is revealed by what we do when he doesn't immediately answer. Great faith keeps us focused on him as our sole source of hope, even in the midst of difficulties. So Jesus doesn't immediately respond, which does not stop her from desperately crying out in faith. The irritation of the disciples does not stop her from crying out in faith. If we learn anything from Jesus's silence, let it be our third element of this encounter that this woman had a determined faith. So she comes and cries after Jesus. He doesn't answer. The disciples say, send her away. Uh, he doesn't immediately talk to her. We see that in Matthew 15, 24, that he, he answers his disciples first. So the disciples say, uh, just send her away. And he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, but yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered and said, oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. When we finally see Jesus answer, it's not to her, but the disciples, and he answers about himself, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, this did not deter her. The Bible says, even if he was not sent to help her, she believed he was able to. So she comes and kneels before him and says, Lord, help me. Now, the Lord responds to her, even though upon first reading, we wish that he had just stayed silent, right? I was talking to my kid about this, and I said, you know the story where Jesus calls the woman a dog? And she's like, I haven't heard that story. You mean they don't teach you that in Sunday school? Right? There's no flannel graph where the, Jesus calls a woman a dog? Right? It's, it's, it's not, we don't, it kind of bothers us. Or it should, right? And if you follow his picture, the children are Israel, the bread is God's favor, and that makes the Gentiles the dogs. Ouch, Right? So let's just stop for them a minute, just kind of catch our breath. This woman has come to Jesus in faith, asking for healing for her daughter. The first challenge is that she knows she has no right to presume anything from a Jewish Messiah. She's an outsider and a woman, and yet she comes because she believes that Jesus can and will help her. The second challenge is that she gets no immediate response from Jesus. He is silent to her cries, and yet she continues to cry out, believing that Jesus can and will help her. The third challenge is that she is outside the scope of God's elect people and therefore outside of Christ's mission at the time. He is sent first and foremost to fulfill God's promises to his covenant people. And yet, rather than stop her, it brings her to her knees before the Lord where she begins to ask him to help her, believing that he can and will do so. 
If that was all we knew about her, we would be impressed by her persistent faith and her humility to continue despite seemingly being rejected, right? I mean, she has just endured silence and then a reminder that she is not one of God's elect, not one of God's children. She's outside of the covenant of God, has no claims on him, but it doesn't stop there, does it? As we noted a minute ago, the greatest challenge comes when Jesus says directly to her, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, we do need to make one grammatical note here that although it softens the words, it does not fully remove the sting. Uh, This was common for Jews at this time to refer to the Gentiles as dogs because they considered Gentiles unclean because they would eat anything and they didn't follow God's laws. They were in their mind like the dirty scavenging animals in the streets, like they, they were the dogs. You think about like wild dogs. This is not the word Jesus uses. Jesus could have used that word, but he didn't. He used a word, the terminology he used was reserved for a family pet. He literally says a little dog, right? I don't know if that makes it better, But Jesus says, essentially, this Reformed expository commentary says, yes, he called her a dog, but he has also placed her in the home near the table. When the the Jews called Gentiles dogs, it was because they were outside and filthy and dirty and unclean. But Jesus places this Gentile woman in the house close to the table. John Calvin, in commenting on this passage, says, To make the meaning plain to us, it must be understood that the the children's bread is here given as not the gifts of God of whatever description, but only to those who are bestowed in a peculiar manner on Abraham and his descendants. For since the beginning of the world, the goodness of God was everywhere diffused, filled, filled heaven and earth so that all mortal men felt that God was a father. But as the children of Abraham had been more highly honored than the rest of mankind, The children's bread is a name given to everything that relates peculiarly to the adoption by which the Jews alone were elected to be children. The light of the sun, the breath of life, and the production of the soul were enjoyed by Gentiles equally with the Jews. But the blessings which was to be expected in Christ dwelt exclusively in the family of Abraham. To lay open without a distinction that which God had conferred as a peculiar privilege on a single nation was nothing short of setting aside the covenant of God. For in this way, the Jews, who ought to have the preference were placed on a level with the Gentiles. All that to say, Jesus is not saying that God does not give people anything outside of of his covenant. We know that God gives common grace to all men, right? He makes the sunshine on the wicked and the just and the rainfall. We know these things. But what he's saying is this special ministry that Jesus had when he proclaimed the good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, liberty to the oppressed, was for the Jews first. This was his mission This was the promise that God had given them. So he says to take that from the table and give it indiscriminately to the Gentiles would be akin to taking the meal from the children and throwing it to the pet dogs. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't take the meal that you'd lovingly prepared for your child and remove it from them before they could eat and put it on the floor. You wouldn't do that. Jesus said it wouldn't be right. Now, at this point, I kind of think the disciples may be thinking like, finally, He finally put her in her place, right? She's been crying after her. She won't listen. Finally, he called her a a dog. Surely she's going to leave. But picking up on Jesus' use of the term little dog, she says, yes, Lord, I agree with you. She doesn't argue with him. She says, I agree with you. To take bread out of the mouths of children to feed dogs would not be good. But, and yet, 
Lord, don't those same dogs get the crumbs that fall from the table as the children eat their bread? Right? So she says, okay, well, if I'm in the house, I don't want a seat at the table. Lord, I'd be happy with just crumbs. I'm not trying to push my way into what is rightfully the Jews. I'm okay if just some crumbs from your ministry fall into my life. Because I believe that just crumbs is enough. The level of humility this woman shows is impressive. She's ignored. Then she's reminded that she is outside of God's household. And then she's compared to a family pet. She doesn't argue with this. She knows she doesn't deserve anything from Jesus. She believes that he is compassionate and he can and will hear her daughter. She doesn't want to see the table, just the crumbs. And she believes that that will be enough for her daughter. This is faith. Born out of a desperate need and brought to the right person. It is a determined faith. She remains undeterred from her mission to plead with Jesus to heal her daughter. And Jesus says, great is your faith. Be it done according or be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Be it done for you as you desire. What you have in mind will be accomplished. What you believed in faith, the assurance of things hoped for will be yours. What she knew Jesus could do, what she believed he could do, what she desired for him to do, Jesus does. Her faith was obviously a determined one, we see that, but Jesus says it was also great. The word he uses there is is mega. Literally, he says mega faith. This is the only person that he commends their faith to their face. A centurion, another Gentile, he says he's to the crowd, to his followers, that greater faith I have not found in Israel. But this is the only person in all of Scripture Jesus looks at and says, you have great faith. It's amazing. And it's in Gentile territory with a woman outside of God's covenant, and yet she exercised a great faith. He applauds her faith, and then on account of it grants her prayer. Great faith preserves, or perseveres despite challenges. And so three elements in our story concerning faith. We have a desperate plea of faith, a delayed answer that tests her faith, and a determined faith that perseveres until the end. This is an example of what great faith looks like. So let me ask you today, as we get ready to close, is your faith great or is it little? Because there's the contrast before us. We saw last week what little faith looked like, And this week we see what great faith looks like. And so I want to just as a a kind of way to close and a way for us to think through this, I want to contrast our two stories on faith from last week and this week. And I'm going to give you three statements about faith. Great faith isn't dependent on who you are. Where you were born, your background, whether you grew up in church or not, right? This is not the, the determining factor of great faith. Because listen, Peter was a Jew one of God's chosen people. And more than that, Christ chose him to be an apostle, a disciple, one of the people who would go on to to preach the kingdom. And at the point of his failure, he had already experienced great things, and yet his faith was little in his moment of need. This woman was a Gentile, 
outside of God's covenant people, a stranger to Jesus, and had experienced what we know, no miraculous things, yet her faith was great in the moment of her need. Great faith is not determined or dependent on who you are. Anyone can have great faith. Great faith isn't dependent on how much you know. Peter had been instructed not only in the regular Jewish schooling, but he had been with Jesus, who was expounding and opened up all of the Old Testament wisdom. He had great amount of truth, and yet his faith was little. This woman had only a sliver of knowledge. She knew that Jesus was the promised Messiah, and that he was compassionate, and yet her faith was great. I wrote this note. She had a small spark of truth, but her faith was great in it. Peter had a bonfire of knowledge and his faith was weak or little in it. How much you know is not a precursor on how great your faith is. It's not dependent on who you are. Anyone can have great faith. It's not how much you know. Even knowing a little, you can have great faith. And listen, great faith isn't dependent on how quickly or easily your prayers are answered. Remember Peter? Peter simply said, if it's you, tell me to come out there and I'll come. Jesus said, come, no obstacles, no challenges. And yet his faith was little. This woman was ignored, excluded, and demeaned, and yet her faith was great. You can have great faith despite difficulties, great faith despite challenges, great faith despite little knowledge, great faith depending, I don't care your background or who you are, great faith is available to anyone who will exercise it. So here's the question. What do you desperately need Jesus to do in your life? Do you believe that he can do it? Are you determined to believe it no matter the difficulties, no matter the challenges, even if it feels like heaven itself is silent against your cries? Then faith says, bring your petitions to him, believing that he can do what he has said he will do. God is no respecter of persons, but he is a rewarder of great faith. That's what we find in our text today. So here's my challenge as we close. I don't know. I don't know what your need is today. There may be some people here today that their desperate need is salvation. And you've been wrestling with what that looks like and, and your need and what that means. And so listen, in a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing a song of invitation, a song of response. And I'm going to be at the front with Brittany. And if you want to talk about that, we'll be here to counsel you. But listen, maybe there's something else. Maybe there's some great need in your life and you've been trying to handle it in your own power, in your own might, and you realize today that you are powerless to do it. Then listen, let us, let us pray with you. The altar is open for prayer. Come just cry out to God, believing that he is a compassionate and loving and caring God. Amen? So let's use this time not only to worship, but to bring our petitions before the throne of God. Let us pray.